Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right, welcome everyone back to New Books in Education on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm here from Teachers College at Columbia University, which I think is apropos definitely for for today's uh, discussion. Uh, Today I'm excited to talk with uh, Dr. Bill Derezowitz, and uh, he's going to be talking about his uh, upcoming book uh, titled Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and The Way to a Meaningful Life. And this is from Free Press, uh, published this year, or publishing this year. And uh, I'm really excited to to talk with uh, uh, Dr. Rosowitz because uh, on my Facebook, on social media, there was this article circulating that uh, he wrote for the New Republic uh, called Don't Send Your Kid to to the Ivy League. And it, it caused a great stir. A lot of people were interested. And uh, that article was sort of based uh, on on the upcoming book, you know, try to get uh, eyeballs and people interested. Uh, but but the book has so much more than you know what simply was in that article. So I think it's great that we can uh, actually have the author on to talk to us today. And uh, he 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 does have uh, many years experience in academia uh, with uh, Ivy League, and and now he's been an author uh, for several years as well. Uh, so. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Gerlitz. Uh Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, sure. First of all, good job pronouncing my name. <laughs> thank, thank but you now you much. must refer to me as Bill, otherwise I will terminate the conversation. I, I have no problem and, with that. Good. And also, I just want to let people know that the book comes out August 19th. So depending on when this podcast a post it's either about to come out or just came out yeah absolutely absolutely okay. and i and i and we already there's a link on on amazon we'll, we'll uh, put on there and uh people can can buy it either way uh before or after this this comes out so um Great. yeah why don't you uh if we get started you know why don't you just tell us a little bit about your uh like educational background and sort of how you got into maybe academia in the first place and you know you you talk about in at least in the article uh, you're talking about this elite education and Ivy League and things like that. You know, disclosure, which you can talk about. You you, you are uh, an Ivy League man yourself, you know, from Columbia University and, and taught at Yale. So can you maybe talk a little bit more about that and sort of how you got into into this? Field? Sure, sure. Uh, well, let me say, first of all, that it's true that one of the reactions to the article has been, but you went to the Ivy League yourself. How could you be saying this? Isn't it hypocritical? And, of course, if I hadn't gone to the Ivy League, people would be saying, you don't know what you're talking about. This is just the sour grapes of someone who couldn't get into the Ivy League. Right. So look, I mean, uh, I did end up being in the Ivy League in one form or another for about 24 years. And uh, it, it gave me the perspective. It opened my eyes to a lot of what goes on, a lot of what's going on there. Um, uh, how, why, you know, sort of how I ended up there in the first place, I don't want to make too long a story of it. My dad was actually a Columbia professor, so in some ways I sort of was born into it. And that's really why I went to Columbia College. It was free, and so 
I knew from before I was born that that's where I was going to be going. But um, I think that, uh, you know, I say in the book, I identify with these kids. This is not a book about kids today and how awful they are. I think the system has, the system of meritocracy and the problems with it and, and specifically elite college admissions and what it does to kids and what it does to society ultimately. This has been true for about 50 years. It just keeps getting worse and worse. So I went through two. And one of the things that happened with me is that I, I never got any real direction, real advice, real help in figuring out what I wanted to study, uh, what college should be about. I ended up being a science major because my dad was a scientist. And that's a great decision for a lot of kids. It wasn't a great decision for me. I kind of ended up wandering after college for a few years before I realized that I should always have studied English mm. and I needed to go and study English. Uh, I applied to a bunch of graduate schools. Because I had been a science major, very few of them let me in. Uh, I ended up back at Columbia because in those days they had – there were a few schools like this, I think Chicago and UVA – this insane system where they would take a giant first-year class and then cut half of us after the first year. It was like the sickest, worst educational experience you could imagine. I think they don't do this anymore. So they're the only ones who let me in out of about 12 schools I applied to them in Chicago, which had the same system. Uh, so I did my PhD at Columbia. I had some bad professors, a couple of wonderful professors who were real mentors for me. And I ended up getting the job at Yale uh, I think people who are in graduate school or have gone through graduate school will understand when I say that I didn't choose to teach at Yale. It's the only job I got. I mean, you know, uh, I'm not sure. I had a few interviews. I don't know that I would have gotten any of those jobs. I think there are specific reasons why I was appealing to that department, mostly due with the fact that they're sort of still kind of humanistic in the sort of old-fashioned sense, as I was. And I think for that reason also, because I was always kind of out of step with intellectual currency and literary studies, I wasn't ultimately able to stay in the profession. Another thing that I think people have not understood about me is that I did not leave academia voluntarily. I would love to have continued teaching, and I would love specifically to have continued teaching at a liberal arts college rather than a university, because teaching is really what I cared about. But it just never happened. I just never got that second job. Of course, I didn't get tenure at Yale, which didn't surprise me. So here I am. I'm a full-time writer. But in the course of those years, especially my 10 years on the Yale faculty, I really got to know my students. That's another mistake. I time with my students instead of my research. And I began to see that there were a lot of problems with the way these kids were being trained, conditioned, where it had left them. I wrote an essay about this six years ago called The Disadvantages of an Elite Education. Mm -hmm. That essay went viral. It went viral much more slowly than the New Republic one, but it's continued to have a readership for six years. Mm -hmm. And that's led to a lot of campus uh, talks and a lot of correspondence. And to, make a, to bring a long story to an end, um, this is a big phenomenon. A lot of people have been contacting me about this and professors. And like people, people know this is going on. Right. Uh, and we can talk about what I mean by this. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you just kind of uh, jumping back into something that you mentioned and then connecting that to, to um, you know, at least the article that, that a lot of a lot of people have read so far and, and you can read in the book a little bit more. You talked about you sort of had this, uh, you, you saw what was going on in the admissions office uh, and, you know, what yeah. people were looking at. 
Yeah. Uh, can you kind of talk about uh, some of the things that, that they're looking for and some of the difficulties yeah. with the with the admissions? Yeah. Let me clarify again first. I mean, the piece was framed in a certain way uh, to attract readers, and that's fine. Uh, my claim does not uh, to knowing what's going on does not rest on the one day that I spent in the admissions sure. office, although it gave me an interesting look behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. It's based on 15 years of teaching at Columbia and Yale teaching the products of the admissions process, right? I mean, that's why I know what I'm talking about. And look, I mean, I think we all know what admissions at highly selective universities and colleges, especially universities, expect students to be. You need to do six or seven or eight AP courses. You need to do 10 or 12 extracurriculars. When kids would come up for an admissions decision who only had six or seven extracurriculars, they were already behind the eight ball because that wasn't, you know, enough. Um, Service, leadership, athletics, musical instruments, foreign travel, the whole thing. I mean, we all sort of know what this hoop-jumping childhood is like now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that produces a certain kind of person. Right. Uh, And it's not, I think, the kind of person we want to be producing. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I I had a lot of you know, flashbacks from, you know, I, I did some a previous graduate, uh, you know, assistant work in, in the office of admissions for, uh, uh, one of the colleges here. And so I, I saw a lot of this, uh, you know, going abroad and, 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 you know, doing service projects abroad. And I was thinking, well, wow, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't have done this as, as an undergrad or sorry, as an undergrad, as a, as a high school student, you know, I worked and had other things. And, and so right. I think I connected to that a lot with, with some of the things yeah. that you were, that you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, never mind the fact that in many ways this system necessarily selects for rich kids. Mm. We can talk about that later. Sure. But even before we get to the inequality that it fosters and perpetuates, it creates a certain kind of person. I mean, people have written about this extensively when it comes to the high school kids. There's a book by Denise Clark Pope called Doing School. There's a book by a psychologist named Madeline Levine called The Price of Privilege. So we know that these kids in the affluent suburbs and and urban neighborhoods where the upper middle class and the upper class sort of shove their kids into what David Brooks calls the achievement machine. We we are training kids to be constantly busy, constantly stressed, constantly pressured, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of physical health issues, Mm -hmm. and never give them the opportunity and don't seem to be interested in giving them the opportunity to think about what their education is supposed to be for and what their life is supposed to be about. All the goals are taken for granted. And, you know, for some kids that's fine. And for a lot of kids, it's not fine. Mm -hmm. And they... Now, they either end up doing something after graduation that's sort of the path of least resistance and most money, like Wall Street, or they kind of feel like they don't know what to do with their lives, and they don't know they don't even know how to go about figuring it out. I've heard this from many, many, many students. Absolutely. At many, at many schools. Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I feel like, again, you know, connecting to a lot of things you said, and, you know, maybe it's one of the things that I was interested, uh, you know, I when I got out of school, I certainly didn't know what I wanted to do. I think that's how, how a lot of students are. I, I ended up going to South Korea uh, myself, and I, and I think that was a great decision, but not everyone, uh, you know, makes maybe makes the best decision. But, you know, can we, can we get into, like, uh, you wrote this book, uh, you know, after you know, your, your first viral article, uh, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, you know, that came out in, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, six right. years ago, you said. Six years ago. Yeah. So, uh, is this book kind of an extension of that, or can you can you kind of describe uh, yeah. what was the purpose of of you writing? Yeah. It? No, thanks for asking. I mean, in some ways, this book was sort of—I won't say that it was forced on me, but it, it it is the 
product of the response I got to that article, which I didn't think anyone would read. But first of all, I realized that this wasn't just my perception. A lot of students wrote to me, and almost all of them said, thank you for putting into words what I've been going through. Mm -hmm. So first of all, there was a big need to talk about this and a big hunger for that conversation about purpose and the meaning of an education. And second of all, as I started to do these campus talks that often students would invite me to do, I would get a lot of questions like, so what are we supposed to do about this? Or what am I supposed to do about this? So the book is in four parts, and the first part is an expansion of that original critique. And I talk about the history of the admissions process. I talk about the role that parents play. I talk about the role that colleges are playing or not playing and trying to deal with this. But that's only the first part. And in the, the second and third parts, I move on to a positive message about how do you create a sense of meaning in your life? What is college supposed to be for? And maybe it won't surprise you that one of the things I say college should be about is a liberal arts education centered on the humanities, taught by teachers who are well-supported in small classrooms. Mm. That's a, another big part of the book. And, I, and, I, and it's not sort of liberal arts because it's going to give you instrumental skills. It's about helping you develop as a person. And then the last piece, uh, which is also new, is about the social implications of all of this. Basically, if you look at our leadership class – you see that they have the same characteristics as the students I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. They're timid, risk-averse, intellectually uh, undernourished, very self-serving, very full of themselves, and very out of touch. Mm -hmm. So that's – and then at the end – so in a sense, I, I lay out the problem. I talk about what individual kids can do for the, to save themselves, and then I talk about what we all need to do as a society, I think, to get out of this. Sure, sure. What maybe uh, if you can, you know, don't don't spoil it for us. But what what are some of those tips, or at least a few of them, that you can you can recommend that students be doing, or what they should be doing uh, right. for this experience? Right. Well, first of all, don't go to college. Don't go to the most prestigious college that lets you in because it's the most prestigious college that lets you in, which most students do. Go to a college that you think is going to give you a real education. Sit in on classes when you do your campus visits. Um, think about what you're going to do when you get there. Don't worry about fancy dorms. Don't worry about fancy climbing walls. Mm. Um, students and families, kids and families make their college choices for all the wrong reasons. It's right. very much a status competition, prestige competition. You need to, um, you need to, um, step aside from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and stepping aside is another big recommendation I make. I know probably students have heard this before, but it bears repeating. Take time off whether it's before college, during college, after college, just first of all, just to let yourself think, let yourself hear what you want, get in touch with yourself, and be in a place where you don't have to hear the messages that you're constantly getting about status, credential, success. I did an event at Stanford a couple of months ago where a student asked this beautiful question about, you know, what are, you know, basically where are our dreams coming from? What is the origin of these, these dreams that we're all – that are installed in us? That's what kids have to figure out. They have to figure out, are the things that I want the things that I really want or just the things that I've been taught I should want? Mm -hmm. And getting away from it, like I said, taking time off. And not taking time off in the way that a lot of kids do now to just continue to build a resume of credentials, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. – so, you know, you, you talked about sort of, you know, what kids should be doing. 
is it different from maybe, you know, what parents should be suggesting or how, you know, how does a parent really say uh, something to their student along the lines of, you know, go go find yourself kind of thing? Right. Well, let me say, you know, there's actually one more thing I wanted to add, but it's also very relevant to what you just asked. I would say the third major thing, and this is a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to say, but I think it's a truth that has to be told. Um, You can't have it all. You cannot have it all. Uh, this is a system that forces us to choose, forces you to choose between learning and success, learning in the broadest sense. It forces you to choose between learning and success. So you have to choose. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to give up, you, you, you may well have to give up a, a certain amount of success, whether that's credential, status, wealth, in order to do something that's meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. And this is the problem. I mean, I wouldn't say that parents should say anything different to their kids than what I just said. Right. The problem is that a lot of parents think they're already saying that. Mm-hmm. They, t- they say, do what you love, follow your dream. The problem is they don't really mean it. There's a silent addendum that every kid understands, which is do what you love as long as it is also prestigious, lucrative, high status. Right, right. You, you can't have it both ways, and, and it's, it's risky. It's sure. risky, and and you need to recognize. But you, what you need to recognize is that it's a risk either way, because you're taking a risk if you do work that makes you miserable, right. and the risk is that you're going to be miserable. Sure. I don't think anyone's made them ever made themselves happy by chasing status and wealth, mm-hmm. and yet we continue to do it. Absolutely. And and do you think you know looking back on maybe your your own time or, or just you know some of the research that you put in. Do you feel like it's getting sort of, you know, quote unquote, worse for students today, or is it has it always sort of been like this, and now we're just sort of more cognizant of these kinds of things? I'm glad you asked that because it's important to emphasize that this did not start in 2008 with the financial collapse. I mean, on the one hand, obviously that's made people more concerned about money, and they should be more concerned. Mm-hmm. And the growing college costs and growing student debt. These are all real issues that everyone is going to have to think about for themselves. But this is definitely not a product of the last six years. I mean, after all, I wrote that article six years ago before the financial collapse. Right. Um, This is partly the result of 50 years of meritocracy. We can talk about what that means. Uh, Absolutely. What it means, among other things, is that you're pursuing things exclusively for your own benefit. But it's also a product of 30-plus years of, quite frankly, Reaganism Mm -hmm. and the belief that happiness equals money with a side order of fame. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is very much about broader social values, which is also to say that – and this is something that I don't think the article communicated uh, partly because of the way it was framed – is – this is not just the colleges. I mean, this is the whole system at which the colleges sit as the, the keystone of, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, absolutely. Do you want to maybe go into that a little bit more? Uh, you know, maybe the differences that you you didn't get a chance to really write. You know, you can't. You know, with it, we know journalism today. You, you can't have too too many words, or potentially, you know, people. Right, are, right, 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 right. Do you want to right. talk about maybe just a little bit more of those differences? Or some you didn't get to dive into into the into the article that is really uh, well put into the book. Yeah, right. I mean, in some ways, I, I've already referred to it. Um, the article is mostly the critique part with little bits of some of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
uh, I, it, I didn't really get a chance to talk about all the constructive stuff about right. you know uh, what college should really should be for and, and developing a sense of purpose and all that stuff. Um, but again, also, uh, this is not just the Ivy Leagues in in two senses. Mm-hmm. It's a lo- it's a whole bunch of selective schools that go well beyond the Ivy Leagues. I mean, I say maybe a hundred schools, okay. uh, and and also. Um, it's not just what happens at college. It's fundamentally about what happens before kids get to college. But what happens is, is happens because of the college admissions process. I mean, upper-middle-class childhoods now are off very, very, very often exclusively geared towards producing people who could get into the Ivy League. Right, right, absolutely. And, and I think that connects uh, greatly with sort of the idea we talked a little bit about a second ago, but if you want to dive more into it uh, with this idea of meritocracy, you know, we, we, we always uh, identify meritocracy as sort of, um, you know, what we, what we strive to be in the United States. Um, but I think what we've kind of uh, elicited here is that uh, potentially, you know, the, these institutions aren't uh, necessarily a part of, uh, of a meritocracy, at least not the way we sort of define it ourselves. Yeah. Well, I, I would say a couple of things about that. I actually, what I, the phrase I use in the book is is a hereditary meritocracy, uh, we, which is intended to be an oxymoron. We've developed a system, not consciously, based on all the choices that families have been making, where meritocracy is not actually where everybody gets a chance to rise to the level of their talent. Mm-hmm. It is self-perpetuating because wealthier families can stuff their kids full of the educational resources they need to demonstrate merit on an Ivy League college application. So that's the first issue, that, you know, our meritocracy is no longer, um, it's no longer truly uh, egalitarian, that everybody has the same chance. And then the other issue, and they're related issues, is that the merit in meritocracy is maybe not the merit that we really want to encourage. Mm. Uh, Nicholas Lehman in his book about the SATs, The Big Test, talks about this, that the definition of merit has changed. Mm -hmm. And it tends to uh, reflect what current elites see as their own strengths. Basically, merit is defined as what the people who already have power and wealth uh, exhibit the most of. Right. Uh, I think we've evolved towards a system where the merit that we're developing in kids is not what we really want from our leaders, from our most talented kids. Uh, there's a lot of conformity. There's a lot of, uh, of course, hoop jumping. Um, a lot of technocratic uh, expertise, mm. but not, a, not any kind of, very little kind of wider uh, wisdom. I see. Um, as I say, they're very good at answering questions, but not so good at thinking up new ones. Sure, sure. Oh, and, and so, you know, you mentioned sort of you, you, you're talking about, you know, things that, you know, what can we change uh, for, in the system or with, with universities or, or what, what are some of those things? Like, how do we, right. how do we make a better mer- mer- right. mer- uh, meritocracy in our system? How does that, how do we do right. that? Right. Um, let me say, first of all, that I don't have all the answers. I mean, I think there are a lot of questions that this book raises that I'm not equipped to answer. Sure. Um, I think we want to select 
for uh, risk taking, for intellectual curiosity, for genuine independent mindedness, uh, for real creativity and not sort of conventionally demonstrated creativity. Mm-hmm. And there are various things that, that uh, elite colleges can do to reform their admissions process, limit the number of extracurriculars, uh, refuse to be impressed by any opportunity that's made possible by parental wealth, uh, eliminate preferences for athletes, for legacies. But I think we need to go further than that. I mean, this took me a long time to realize, and it's one of the differences between the original article and the book. Uh, I, I, I think we're only those schools will only ever go so far mm-hmm. because they have a business model that requires them to admit a lot of affluent students. Mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about how Harvard gives a lot of financial aid. It's true. But 40% of people who go uh, still pay full price. Uh, they give financial aid below $180,000 of household income. Mm-hmm. So you could still be quite affluent and get financial aid from Harvard, and many people who are do. So ultimately, by histo- reasons of historical accident, we have outsourced the training of our leadership class to a set of private institutions who will always be acting ultimately in their own interest. Mm -hmm. What we really need to do is make those institutions irrelevant by creating free, first-rate public higher education. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that there was a time in this country for many decades in the 20th century where we tried to do, and in many cases succeeded in doing, exactly that, most obviously at the University of California. We pulled back from that commitment starting about 30 or 40 years ago. And there's been a, you know, an enormous drop in public funding for state higher education right? because people don't want to pay for it anymore. Right. Well, if you don't pay for that, this is what you end up with. Right, right. You end up with a privatized system and people essentially buying their way into it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and, and, and if you could, you know, what, what universities, what institutions that, that you've seen out there that you've witnessed – are at least you know m- making a better attempt than, than potentially some of the uh, maybe these more elite institutions. Right. right. Well, I mean, I'm 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 wary of naming some schools and not others, and partly because there are many, many, many schools, and there are many that I'm not very familiar with at all. Sure. Um, I mention a couple of things in the article, and I've been criticized for this, but I mention public universities mm. and liberal arts colleges. And people have said, well, public universities don't really give a very good education. And people have said liberal arts colleges are kind of elite themselves. And they're right. Those are two responses to do two different problems. If you want to go to a place that's socioeconomically diverse with all the experiential learning that implies, you're better off going to a public university. If you want to go to a place that gives a real liberal arts education, you're better off going to a liberal arts college. Uh, it's hard to think of schools that do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are now, I believe, several dozen honors colleges within or honors programs on public university campuses. Right. And I think those are certainly one great set of options. Um, now, beyond that, we can name schools. I mean, yeah. you know, people will always cite Deep Springs. You know, Deep Springs is a very, very small institution mm-hmm. that even if people wanted to, only very few people could go to. I think there's some liberal arts colleges. I've been very impressed. I live in Portland, Oregon. I've been very impressed at Reed and how extremely academically rigorous it is. Uh, but you know what? I think there are also a lot of what you might call regional liberal arts colleges, like Lawrence University in Kansas or Berry College in Georgia, and probably a lot of others that, like I said, I've quite frankly never heard of. Sure. That really 
you know, um, that really do a good job because they're really committed as much as they can be in today's climate mm-hmm. to, you know, again, a, a, a genuine liberal arts education and not training to enter the global elite, Absolutely. which is really what the Ivy Leagues at Stanford and so forth, that's what they're for. Sure, sure. So, you know, sort of after uh, talking and hearing about the book, you know, who, who's your uh, who's your audience? Who are you hoping picks this up and reads it and and uh, makes, you know, attempts to, you know, follow some of the things or at least think about some of the things that, that you that you wrote about? Everybody. Okay. I want everybody to read it. And I will uh, – let me just say that um, I'm going to be in Chicago on my book tour in November. I was – uh, I was invited by a, a group of parents on the North Shore. The North Shore is sort of the fancy part of what they call Chicagoland. Right. And I, it looks like I might be doing an event at the University of Chicago and another event at a big law firm downtown. Sure. So that's three different groups, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been talking to students for the last six years, but parents have started to pay attention. I think parents are very concerned about this. So students, right. parents, why does a law firm want me to talk to them? Well, I mean, I think... People recognize that these issues impact on, like I said, on leadership. And what does that mean? What should our, how should our leaders be trained? And what does leadership mean in the first place? Um, and of course, listen, this is a podcast that's coming to, to me from, coming to us from Teachers College. Uh, I mean, a lot of professors, a lot of uh, high school teachers, I mean, professors are often disconnected from actual teaching and education, but enough of them care about this and want to care about this. Uh, And administrators, uh, I think they tried to ignore me, but I think some of them, especially liberal arts colleges, I'm going to be talking to the Annapolis group in a a couple of months, which is the, which is sort of the group of uh, liberal arts college presidents. Uh, So yeah, I mean, anyone who's, and, and anyone who cares about American society, I think. Because, like I, this is why this is relevant to everyone. Right. Again, because this is the system that's producing our leaders. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That that's. Uh, I think that's a, a really great uh, a great answer. And hopefully, from the the podcast, we can get uh, all our audience to to be interested and, and, and listen to things like that. Um, if you could, you know, we've talked a little bit about you know you, you you've heard some of these criticisms after the article, uh, you know. What were some of the criticisms that, that you've already received and sort of what you're sort of um, potentially bracing yourself for? Or, you know, if, if you want to say, you know, what, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? What do they misunderstand? Um, if you could. Well, of course, I don't think they got anything right because I think it's perfect. But, um, right. yeah, look, I mean, there, there, are, there are some patterns in the criticism. The first is, you know, sort of the how do you know pattern. My experience was different. Some of these are written by people who are still undergraduates, so their experience is incredibly limited. The fact is, like I said, a million plus people have read that original essay mm-hmm. and have passed it on to their friends. Right. Um, hundreds of emails, encounters with hundreds of students at uh, more than a dozen campuses, and professors, and people, who've, and parents, and people who've been dealing with this. Right. So I know what I'm talking about. Are my criticisms true of every single kid? Of course not. But that's, a, that's I think, a copying objection. Sure. Um, another big one is that my, you know, my book starts with by talking about how unhappy these kids are. Mm. And there's been a, an interest, there's been a lot of resistance to that idea. Um, 
the fact is that um, we know this. I mean, there's studies of certainly of high school kids who are going through this. Uh, but also, again, I mean, a lot of the people are saying, these kids seem perfectly happy to me. Or they say, kids have always been unhappy. Right. Yeah, kids have always been unhappy, but not like this. Mm. Um, we're putting too much pressure on these kids, and they're cracking. And the closer you get to the situation, the more aware of it you are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, high school teachers are aware of it. People in deans of students' offices and college counseling services are, for, are aware of it. Professors, who the few, the relatively few who pay attention to their students are aware of it. Right. Um, uh, you know... Um, I would say those are a couple of the issues. I sure. think I've, I've sort of already addressed yeah. uh, some of them. Absolutely. You, you know, what's interesting, you know, you talk about these pressures and, and some of the, the things that we put on students uh, today and in, in our system that we're maybe moving more into uh, that goes beyond higher education and, and it's more systemic in education in general is, uh, you know, we talk about these high stakes testing. Yeah. Uh, do you see any connections to that? You know, what's, go- what's going on with uh, reforms and sort of, uh, uh, secondary and, and early childhood education, things like that. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's complicated. I don't, I've thought about this, and I, I haven't uh, thought it through to a satisfactory extent. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two Americas in education, too, just as there are two Americas everywhere. Right. There's the 10%, and there's the rest, the other 90%. And I'm not sure how similar the experiences are. I mean, the sort of teaching to the test that happens in your typical public school, I think, is kind of about disciplining and punishing the, the lower classes, quite mm-hmm. frankly, and creating uh, sort of obedient workers uh, and docile citizens. Right. Uh, the stuff that happens in the upper middle class, I mean, in some sense, it's sort of like teaching to the test. You're sort of living to the test, and the test is college admissions. It, I think, uh, but 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 it's 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 really self-generated in a lot of ways. It's it's really sort of internal competition with, within the upper middle class. Uh, if there's a commonality, and to bring this back to sort of theoretical questions about education, it's the notion that education is purely instrumental, right. and that we sh- you know. We shouldn't waste time with these things that can't be measured. And why would we want to give kids downtime? And you know, and you know, uh, and ironically, uh, the systems that we look to with uh, envy, uh, our East Asian competitors, they're trying to go in our direction. Right. I mean, they have, if anything, more test-driven, high-pressure systems than we do. And they've started to realize that they're missing something, and they're missing the precise thing that enables us to be a more creative economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, mean, I lived right. in Korea for, for three years, uh, and I have a lot of connections in, in East Asia. And so, you know, I can definitely see a, a lot of people there wanting their system to, to be closer to us. And it's, it's kind of ironic that our system might be moving closer to theirs. Uh, Absolutely. So you did see that there. Yeah. I mean, I, I taught yeah. in a high school in, in uh, outside of Seoul for a year. And, uh, you know, I had students that were, they would uh, be studying all day long uh, up until really late at night. Right. Uh, and it was just, you know, to pass this test. And once they got to their right. senior year, they cut like these conversational language classes that we had and they just did, you know, went to this rote memorization. So I, yeah. I 100% saw it. So we were, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a piece in the Times, I don't know if you saw it, just this past Sunday, uh, about 
exact about South Korea and the cram schools and studying till ten o'clock at night and how the kids are miserable. Right. The kids are, you know. Absolutely. I mean, it was the, the funny thing is you go to you, know, you go to the school there and you say, hey, what, what did you do this weekend? And they look at you like, what do you mean? What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, let, let's hope maybe we don't you know go go that far, but. Um, you know, coming, coming up to it. And is there anything else that you want to add, uh, just about your book that we didn't get to, or that we didn't get to talk about so far? Um, I, I mean, I think, I think we've, uh, I think we've covered, I think we've covered a lot of it. Okay. Um, I just, yeah, I just hope people check it out for themselves and not just, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Sure. Fantastic. Uh, and, and it, I know like you, you, it's not even out yet technically and you've got a, a lot of book book tours coming up, but you know, what's next after this book? You know, <laughs> I have no idea. I can't see past this. I see. Um, uh, probably I'll continue to write about education. I would also like to write about other things as I've, as I've been doing. Um, I'm interested in a lot of things that are going on in American culture and, uh, I see many of them as connected. I'll just leave you with one thought because, yeah. In the course of sort of writing about other things, I've, I've circled back to something that I think is very relevant. There's a, I have a friend who has an MFA and an MBA, and her career is sort of at the intersection of art and business. And she talks about the difference between design thinking and art thinking. And design thinking is where you have a problem and you're trying to solve it. So you get from A to B. And art thinking is where you invent B. It's an open-ended exploratory process. And it's not about one being better than the other. It's about both being necessary. But what she sees in business and what I see in education is what she calls design thinking. Mm. We're teaching students how to get from A to B, how to solve a problem, and how to get from A to B in their life, right? right? I want to be an X. Instead of giving them the tools to invent a B and invent a B in their own life, maybe they want C, D, or E. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. So you know, may, maybe uh, you know. I know you probably can't even have a conception of it, but the, but something you know, a, another article coming out about uh, some of these design design uh, skills, things like that. Uh, that oh be. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I do appreciate it, and um, uh, I just encourage all our listeners uh, to go check out Excellent Sheep, the miseducation of the American elite and the way to a meaningful life. Uh, and I, I have to thank, uh, Dr. Bill Derezowitz. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And, uh, I hope you guys learned something. Thank you.